it, you know, as you think about the, you know, the study of Acts, before we get into our lesson, uh, let me uh, let you know there is an outline for next quarters as we continue our study of Acts. There's an outline, uh, a single sheet on the ledge of the AV room. Uh, Brother uh, Bill Bain, not Bill, Brian, sorry, Brian. <laughs> Uh, Brian Bain will be uh, uh, directing that study in, uh, in starting in Acts 13 to the end uh, of the book. And so, just a single sheet, you know, kind of schedule for us to follow. Uh, last week, we, we you know, focused on the, the church in Antioch. Uh, you know, as you think here of, of the growth that's going on here, just a couple of, uh, few verses that kind of summarize you know, our study. When he says, men of Cyprus and Cyrene came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. And so the gospel is spreading, the church is growing and, uh, and being established in other places. And there in the 26th verse, you know, we're told that uh, Paul and Barnabas for an entire year met with the church and taught considerable numbers and the disciples are first called Christians in Antioch. And so you know, that's kind of where we are. I want to kind of uh, make a couple points as we conclude. Um, this is just kind of a bit of some information. Uh, Syriac versions of the Bible were one of the earliest translations made. And so it just kind of you know, established the fact that the the establishment of the Lord's church in other places and even in the country of Syria was a major role. And so when you think about the, uh, the coming of our Bible, uh, the history of, of the development of various versions and translations in the world, the Syriac versions are some of the earliest that, uh, ha- that were. Syriac was the language of Syria, obviously, as well as Mesopotamia. It was very similar to the language of Aramaic. Now, but what, what uh, language was the New Testament originally trans, uh, uh, transcribed? What was it first written in? Greek, yeah, or Kone Greek. Uh, and so it's not modern Greek. It is an ancient Greek that it was uh, first written in, and then it would be translated uh, into other language uh, in a more concrete form. Uh, this particular you know, you know, version, these two, the Curatonian and the Sinaitic, uh, were, were written what is called Old Syriac. And, and these are the two chief manuscripts in that particular study. Uh, the Curatonian dates back to the 5th century, and so you're talking about in the 400s AD. Uh, it was a manuscript of the Gospels. And it had 80 leaves, 80 pages. Uh, the Sinaitic uh, was probably just a little bit older, you know, you know, still within the 5th century time period. It was a rescript manuscript, meaning it was they wrote over an older manuscript. And so it was a rescript of the Gospels as well. Now, you know, scholars who you know, are into the study of textual criticism... You know, believe that these two Syriac manuscripts were copied. You know, now, this is just what scholars are concluding. Were copied from a text that goes back to the 2nd century. And so you can see why you know, 
these manuscripts play a major role in the manuscripts of the New Testament particularly, and here these are gospel manuscripts uh, and why uh, it's important for us to just kind of make point of that. To me, I just want to make the idea, so you think here's the church is established, and it is a a growing church, it is a thriving church, it was a strong church in the first century. And so in time, you you know, manuscripts would be copied, and it'd be copied into various languages, you know, the gifts of the Holy Spirit enabled and empowered Christians to be able to, you know, orally, you know, speak in foreign language in, in the proclamation of the gospel. And in time, that would be written down. They would sp- share the Greek manuscripts, and those Greek manuscripts then would be translated. And, and these are a couple of significance. And so, you know, let's kind of, kind of just conclude our little bit of 11 where it talks about the church of Antioch. It's growing, it's thriving. You've got Barnabas and Saul there working with them. And we're told that at this time, there were some prophets who came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And we may point out that you know, even though Antioch is in north, you know, quite a ways uh, north of Jerusalem, it is a very a detailed uh, uh, statement that Luke includes, so that you know, geographically, you know, we know that the landscape, you know, you know, it goes downward, and so Jerusalem is of higher elevation than uh, Antioch because Antioch is in the north and closer to the coast, and so you got these prophets that you know, you know, come up, and one is by the name of Agabus, and he is foretelling about a famine that was going to affect the world. Uh, I think a significant thing is to see the, the thread of the work of the Holy Spirit here. If you recall, in Acts chapter 2, you know, the apostles were baptized with the Holy Spirit. You know, that was an outpouring by uh, the command of Jesus Christ. And at that time, only the apostles received that. And, and they were able to proclaim the gospel in a number of different languages because in Jerusalem there were all kinds of languages represented as Jews has come to celebrate the Pentecost. But now we're in, in chapter 12 and now we've got other men who are prophets as well. These are not, you know, and so these prophets that come up from Jerusalem are not apostles and what we have here is a continual fulfillment of Acts 2 or Joel 2. Remember what he said? When the, God's going to pour out his spirit upon mankind. And it talks about how there in the 17th verse of Acts 2 that uh, sons and daughters would prophesy. And so you, you see the work of the spirit is ongoing here in, in this first century. And so you have the sons prophesying, and Agabus is one of those sons. Here is a Christian who has the gift of prophecy, and he, is, comes up, he comes up to Antioch, and he's telling them about a famine that was going to happen in that, at that particular time. And the church then responds. It, it reacts to this news, and they have concern for their brother in the south, and they're, so they're going to take action to help. This famine that we're told, it says here in Acts chapter 11, verse 28, 28, took place in the reign of Claudius. You know, that is a Roman emperor. 
And so you, you know, this famine that occurred during the reign of Claudius you know, is mentioned by the Jewish historian Josephus. Now, uh, in Josephus' writing, he actually mentions more than one famine that occurred during you know, the reign of Claudius in different locations. But he does mention that there was one that particularly hit Judea hard. And so you have a Jewish historian, you know, kind of giving you know, support you know, you know, to this account. And so you see agreement between the scriptures as well as with secular writings. And so the response is, okay, Christians want to help. And so you have them willingly sending relief for brethren in Judea. And I think it's important you know, to, to, to make note of that in verse 29. It says, In the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. So here is this idea of cheerful givers. You know, people willingly giving from their heart as they had means to help their brothers and sisters in a different location. And so you have disciples sending relief to disciples in a different place. And what's interesting to think, here we are in the first century, there is no outside human organization that was formed to fulfill this need. You know, what you have, you have brethren gave four brethren who are in need, and brethren handled it. That simple. You did not have to have major, huge institutional organizations overseeing something, but rather Christians took care of Christians. And, and, and it's a pattern that you know, we can learn from and that we need to implement. And so they send it in the hands of Barnabas and Saul, and so they take it down to, you know, to Judea, and it's going to be turned over into you know, those you know, who were elders of the churches, and they would then distribute that you know, you know, gift, that contribution to those in need. And so that kind of sums up the, the work in Antioch for the time being. It's going to be picked up in the 13th chapter. You come right back to Antioch, and you, you see what a thriving and growing church they really were. You know, that they played a major role in the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Are there any other concluding thoughts that anyone would you know, like to make before we get into the 12th chapter? Brother Sam. I had a few just real quick comments. <clears throat> Number one, this is not meant to be political, but they had climate change. They couldn't do anything about it. They just had to cope with it, and we see that throughout the Bible. Many of these things, that leads into this, which is more important, uh, the fact that when they had issues like that, brethren helped brethren. Mm-hmm. And you're exactly right. I, I feel like if God wanted some institutional thing to be set up forever and ever, we'd read about it. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing, and I didn't write it down, so it's gone. But um, yeah, to me, one of the most important things is for us to keep, to, to keep you know, abreast of, of what's going on with our brethren, if we can. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was an email the other day, I think it was from uh, Leland, about potentially helping people in different places. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't take much. Right. I can, I can go without an $18 pizza 
and help them for a week. Mm-hmm. So uh, just yes. things to think about. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Anyone else want to add something? Brother Bruce over here. It's interesting to note in the final verse there that we have the first mention of elders mm-hmm. indicating that the churches were organized in the first century according yes. to the pattern that was set. That's a good point. You know, you've got biblical organization of the congregations of God's people. Uh, Sister Diane in the back there. Yeah, so, that, so this is the first mentioning of you know, elders serving in this capacity. And, of course, elsewhere in the scriptures, we, that is expounded further. Sister Diane. I, I had never realized before until recently that when Paul was put on the ship to go back to Tarsus, because I think it was the Greeks at the time that were about to kill him. Right, yes. In, in chapter 9. And then he was in Tarsus, and Barnabas, who introduced him to the, to the uh, apostles right. and, and got him in, so uh-huh. to speak, in the first place, now goes and digs him out of Tarsus and takes him to Antioch. Right. And then he really takes off. Yes. And I, for some reason, I had never realized that that ship went a long way to Tarsus, uh-huh. and now... And now he's so Barnabas when they had the, the disagreement about John Mark. Yeah, that was a big deal. Because it was. They were very, very close. Right. Yes. Uh huh. And so you know that's going to be addressed. But that's a good point to realize. And to me, when you think about these you know, specific events, he's converted. Uh, he you know he's uh, flees because of persecution, and now Barnabas has to go find him, bring him back. You begin to see the fulfillment of what Jesus said he would do. Yeah, and so Jesus says, you know, this is you know, I have chosen you, you know, for a mission, and and so that mission is you know truly is going to you know come to its greater fruition, greater fulfillment, as you see he's come to Antioch, and that's going to lead to the rest of the book of Acts, where the focus is on Paul's work, and so it is it it, it is here in the twelfth chapter basically. Peter, Peter's role you know, begin, you know, is going to get there. Peter's role is going to subside. Not that he's not still working, but from the standpoint of Luke the historian being directed to compile this divine account, you know, the focus is going to shift and, and, and look at Paul and the work he's doing and being that apostle who takes the gospel to the uttermost parts of the world as Acts 1 verse 8 states. And so you've got you know, great things happening in Antioch. You know, Paul and Barnabas, they head to Jerusalem to, you know, to carry the gift. That gift is going to be distributed to the saints, to needy Christians, you know, uh, under the oversight and the guidance and direction of, of, of the elders in that area. And so now you come back to Jerusalem, and things are not all so rosy. You know, all, things are not all so good because we have here is you have persecution, again, being uh, a problem or a circumstance they have to face. And so opposition to the cause of Christ comes from many different directions. Uh, our adversary, Satan, has at his disposal you know, almost a limitless number of agents 
when you think about the greater war against God and the greater war against God's people. Initially in the book of Acts, the persecution you know, against Christians, against uh, beginning there in the church in Jerusalem, was first coming from whom? Coming from the Jews, yes. And, and initially, primarily, you know, Jewish leadership, you know, you know, they were kind of, the, you know, they were, on, they were ones at the helm here leading this. But now in Acts chapter 12, you see civil authority now. Civil authority has joined this Jewish opposition. And so we're introduced to you know, a, histor- a historical person named Herod Agrippa I. He is the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great, you know, it was the time at the birth of Jesus Christ. Agrippa I territory covered Judea, Samaria, Galilee, and Perea. And chapter 12 basically tells us about the end of this particular Herod. And he died in the year 44 AD. And so you think about where we are time-wise in chapter 12 versus time-wise in chapter 2. Chapter 2 would have been, you know, roughly around the year 33 or so, you know, depending on the estimate of, of those years. And so you're looking at a span of about 10 years here. And so from chapter 2 to chapter 12 is a 10-year period uh, that has occurred. Because we know historically Herod dies in the year 44 A.D. And now so we have here, so he chooses to persecute Christians in Jerusalem. And the reason why he's doing it, it, well, let me ask you, what's the reason why he's doing it? Yep, people like it. And what are politicians concerned about? People, you know, people liking them, people, you know, favoring because people, you know, affect, you know, their, their position and able to keep that position even in the Roman Empire that, you, you know, that was significant. If you, if you were placed above a region, you know, by the emperor and things didn't go well for you, you know, and there was a lot of ruckus going on and you couldn't keep it under control, well, then... Out you go, you know, Caesar's going to put someone else in. And so, you know, Herod is doing this because it's pleasing the Jews. And, uh, and perhaps one reason uh, he is interested in pleasing the Jews, and maybe the Jews are even more upset now because they're hearing the fact that the gospel is being taken to, Gentile, to Gentiles as well. So you've got Jews now, converted Jews, who are now, you know, being, you know, you know, familial with Gentile Christians. And, of course, Jews don't associate with Christians. So that may be playing into it. That's just a thought. But James the Apostle is executed here. And you see that in verse 2. You, know, you have, you actually, they arrested more than James. It says he arrested you know, you know, some who belonged to the church. You know, he's talking about the church in Jerusalem. And so yeah, we were in, now we're back in Jerusalem. And he says, he arrests some, and he puts James, the brother of John, to death with the sword. So James is the first apostle you know, to be a martyr for Christ. Stephen was the first disciple to be a martyr for Christ. Now, 
Do you, do you recall what uh, uh, Jesus said to James and John back in the Gospels when they said, hey, we want to sit at your right hand? Do you remember what, what Jesus says to, to them about that? Huh? Right. He says, you will drink the cup that I will drink. You will be baptized with the baptism that I will be baptized with. And if you recall, he says that you know, they wanted a seat and Jesus tells them, you know, well, you know, that's, you know, that's not you know, for you. you know, but he does ask him, back in chapter 10 of Mark, for example, verse 38 is the account I'm reading. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. You, know, you want this prestigious spot beside me in heaven. He says, you do not know what you're asking. And how often that is true about us. <laughs> you know, that we, you know, sometimes when we ask God, we don't know what the ramifications are. He said, you don't know what you're asking. And he, so Jesus asked him, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able, very confident in their faith and their allegiance to Christ. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink and, the, and you shall be baptized with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left this is not mine to give, but it's for those whom it has prepared. Yeah. Basically, so that, you know, th- those seats were already taken. <laughs> it's already prepared. It's already predetermined. And he says, it's not mine to give that to you. you know, there is another who's already determined that. But the thing is, he says, you are going to drink a cup and, a, and you're going to be immersed with a baptism of which I am. And so when you have this account in chapter 12 regarding James, and then, like I said, and we're, and all, we're just kind of told, here's this fact. And, you, and, and, and being curious people, you know, it's like, well, you know, we, we, you know, what really happened? You know, we're not told. You know, you know, we don't need to know all those details. We just need to know that here, persecution is still happening it, it, here's another kind of uh, rise in it, you know, where it, it was, it, it was a, Paul was, remember, convert, Saul was converted, and so it kind of, it died down a little bit, but it's not gone. Persecution is not gone. Here it's kind of increased a little bit more in Jerusalem because now Herod has stepped in, and he, ha, and he has civil authority in regard to executions. And so we said, James, James was killed. But that is a fulfillment of what Jesus told James. You will drink the cup and you will be immersed with similar suffering. And so he does. And as a result, then, you have Peter now is going to be brought into the picture. And so he's arrested, but he's arrested to be executed. You know, that's what, really what's going on here. You know, Herod plans to kill him too, but he doesn't right away for what reason? What, what, what Jewish feast is in progress? Okay, it's the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so those two went hand in hand. The, the Feast of Unleavened Bread was a, leak, a week-long you know, feast. And Passover you know, was associated with that. Interestingly, you think, here you are, roughly 10 years, about 10 years removed from the time of Jesus Christ. What season of the year was Jesus crucified? The same time, was he not? 
He was at the same time. Now, he observed the Passover, remember? Jesus observed the Passover. But it was in that time period that Jesus was crucified. You know, he, he observed the, the Feast of Eleven Bread, and he partook of the, Lord's, of, not the Lord's Supper, the Passover with his apostles in the upper room, and it instituted the Lord's Supper that is to be commemorated by his disciples you know, on the Lord's Day. And so all of that took place during the same time period. And I find, it, it, there's a, to me, that's, that's an interesting correlation. When you put that with Mark 10 and the other accounts that harmonize when Jesus says, you will drink the cup that I'm drinking and you will be immersed with the baptism I, I am baptized with. And here is James who is executed and Peter's arrested and it's happening Around the same kind, same time of ye, time of year, about ten years later. So that's just an interesting a bit of fact when you think about that. And so it implies that you know, so Peter is arrested, but he's he's kept in prison for some days. We don't know how many days it was, but he's there. There he's there in prison for a bit of time here. And and Herod makes sure he's going to be guarded well. Why do you think Herod wants to, is putting the, a little more greater security on Peter in prison? Why do you think he's doing that? They keep getting out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you can have confidence to know that when the angel appeared earlier on, you know, years earlier in Jerusalem, and twelve you know, apostles got out. You know, unknowingly, and they, they keep on preaching. So the fact that, okay, now Peter's arrested. Okay, we need to make sure that we guard Peter very well and nothing like that happens again. And so he assigned four you know, you know, you know, uh, squads on him, which you know, squad is four soldiers. And so four times four, so it's 16. There would have been you know, the watch the night kind of thing as well. But to kind of see how intense, you know, two of those have to be in the cell with him. Peter's in the middle of those two, chained. And then the other two are outside the cell, as well as whatever guards there would have been stationed throughout the prison. Now, this is not modern prison. And so, so don't try to you know, imagine that, you know, you know, Peter was in a comfortable place to be. He wasn't. Yeah. Probability he was on the floor in some damp, dark place. Chained between two, being guarded so that he can't escape. And while so and that's so he's that way for some days. We don't know how long. He's that way for some days. And while that's going on, while while he's being guarded. What's happening among the brethren in Jerusalem, we're told in this section? What are they doing? They're praying, and they're praying fervently for him, you know, and because of, you know, James has already been executed, the first apostle. Now Peter is arrested and, and is going to be executed, you know, is the plans. And so there is great concern you know, as we're told here, that prayer for him was being made fervently by the church of the Lord. And so we need to be mindful of the fact that you know, it is true 
that effective prayer, when you pray like an Elijah, things happen. Things happen when you pray like an Elijah. How do you pray like an Elijah? By faith, yes. By a faith that does not doubt. A faith that is deeply rooted, that God acts you know, on behalf of his people you know, to carry out his will to his glory. And so remember, you know, you know, the example found in James 5, you know, Elijah is used as an example for us in James 5 when we're told to pray, you know, to pray effectively and fervently you know, as a righteous one because our prayer avails much. And he says, you know, and he then tells you about Elijah. And it tells you about you know, a time of famine or drought, and Elijah prayed for that. Elijah prayed that it wouldn't rain, and it didn't rain. How long did it rain? Three years. And it didn't rain until what? Until Elijah prayed again that it should rain. Yeah. And so, you know, that is, you know, the kind of fervent prayer, you know, that we need to have in our life. And I believe that's the kind of praying that's going on in, in, in Acts chapter 12. Here's the church. It says, you know, the brethren made, you know, fervent prayer, you know, on behalf of Peter who is in prison. And so, you know, what we have is, you know, God did not free Peter immediately. Have you thought about that? You know, when do you think that they started praying? They probably started praying immediately. Well, they're probably praying, you know, they're praying about James and, and now Peter's raised and they're praying. And so, you know, so that, you know, you know, I think the implication is they have been praying. You know, this is not like one just, you know, assembly, uh, one evening kind of prayer. You know, they are praying. And so Peter has been arrested, but God did not free Peter immediately. Instead, God waited. God waited for the night before execution. The night before he would have brought him out to present him to the Jews and fulfill what the Jews were expecting Herod to do. What they were wanting Herod. They were bloodthirsty people. But it was that night, the night before. And so Peter had to wait. How many days? I don't know. The church had to wait. Same thing. They, had, you know, they were learning to wait on the Lord. To answer things in his way, in his time. And so God does send. It says an angel of the Lord was sent. It appears in the cell you know, with Peter. There, verse 7, suddenly appeared. A light shone in the cell. And he, he wakes up Peter. He has to wake him up. And he, he instructs him to get up, but get dressed. And, and he says, okay, now, now follow me. And he leads him out of that prison, that dungeon. And it, it says there in verse 9, he went out and continued to follow. And he did not know that he was being, you know, what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. And so they passed through the first and the second guard, and they came to the gate that leads in the city. It opened by itself, verse 10. 
They went out and went along one street. How far, we don't know, but there is some distance implied here. And then immediately the angel left. And he says, and when Peter came to himself, then he knew. I just find this a, a little interesting, yeah. Yeah, it, it just a thought in my mind. But we think, you know, you know, you know, the idea. Why, why did Peter think he was, you know, he was seeing just a vision? Why, why would he think that? Because you know, back in Acts ten, <laughs> Acts ten, an angel got them out of prison. So it's not something he's never experienced before. But on this particular occasion, uh, you know. It just didn't seem real to him until he was outside there on the street, standing alone, <laughs> yeah, by himself, no chains, no guards, no prison. Right, and then that's the thing. You know, we could surmise all about this. You know, you know, when you think about, you know, you know there are probably times when. Uh, you know, you, ha- you are so deeply asleep and you- someone wakes you up and you, and you-, and you hardly realize what's going on. Uh, so it could have been, you know, a number of things affecting the mind, you know, his mental state, his physical state, his emotional state, you know, clearly that could cloud things. You know, but I think when you think about the, the whole telling of this story, I mean, hard, hard to, I hate to even say story because some we want to think, well, it's not real. Some people use it that way. This account, this historical ca- account of what God did for his people so that the gospel of Christ could spread further. And you think about the telling of the story and all the details that are included. Think about it. all the details that are included in this story. You know, from the, you know, even the idea that you know, you know, Peter didn't realize, you know, he didn't think it was real until he was out. And then later on, when he comes to the, to the house, and, and you think about that incident, and, uh, and, all, and the fact that in this whole story, you know, the, the account about Rhoda and, and them not believing her, you, know, you think of all the, all the details that come with that. And what that suggests is... In Luke's compilation of this divine, uh, in, divinely inspired account, you know, Luke was not an eyewitness of these things. But Luke knew eyewitnesses of these things. And so you think, you know, you know, you know he could have met with Peter, he could have met with Mark, he could have met with Rhoda as they tell the story of the great wonder of what God did when the Lord rescued Peter. I think that's very significant. When Peter comes to himself, there he's freed. And in verse 11 it says, he said, Now I know, now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me. The Lord rescued him. That's what happened here. This was the Lord's doing. And he rescued him from Herod, and he rescued him from the Jewish expectation. Peter knew what the Jews wanted. He knew that they wanted him dead. And he knew that they, you know, you know, Herod was eager to please 
his constituency. He was eager to do that. Peter knew all of that. But the Lord rescued him in his time and in his way. And you think about that idea. You think about the idea of James, he did not rescue. Peter, he did. And what we need to appreciate about that is the Lord was glorified by James' death. The Lord is glorified by James' death, just as he was glorified by Stephen's death. And also the Lord was glorified by Peter's miraculous deliverance. The Lord's will was done in both cases. And he was glorified in both cases. And it was God's will that Peter lived longer to serve for the cause of Jesus Christ. And so time is, is running out here. Uh, let's jump down you know, to uh, this last little section about uh, uh, you know, the meeting of, of Peter at the house. And so you've got, uh, you know, he goes to John Mark's you know, mother's house. You know, Rhoda you know, recognized the voice. They don't believe, believe her. You know, and until they see for themselves, and Peter doesn't stay there. Uh, he says, "Okay, tell, go tell James." He's not talking about the apostle; he's talking about the brother of Jesus. Go tell you know, Jesus' brother James about about what's happened and how it's happened, and the brethren as well. And then he says, "Then he left." We're not told where he left, yeah, uh, but he didn't stay there. And so maybe you know, did he go outside of Herod's territory? I don't know. But that, that, you know, that may have been the case. He may have gone, you know, he, he's getting farther away from the territory of, of Herod. But that is just, just a suggestion. But we find is, okay, you know, Herod finds out about this the next morning and he is not happy at all. He, he, he investigates it and he orders that the 16 soldiers be executed. And once he gives that order, he leaves. You know, he, he doesn't have to do, you know, the actual killing himself. <laughs> you know, he just orders these people to, and he leaves and he goes to the Roman capital of Judea. Caesarea was, is, was the Roman capital of Judea. You know, to, to the Jews, Jerusalem is their capital, but not to the Roman Empire. And so he goes to the Roman capital of Judea. Uh, and he spends some time there. There are some bad relations, political relations between the cities of Tyre and Sidon with Herod. Uh, you know, there, you know, things are not you know, well, well with them, and so they want to kind of make peace. <laughs> yeah, why? Why do they want to make peace with Herod? Yes, he is their bread and butter. You know, you know. They, they relied on the imports of food coming from the territory of Herod. And so you think about, okay, bad relations, imports are cut off. Okay, we need to, we need to resolve this. You know, you know food is, is a major need of every people. And so you know, there's this great assembly and Herod addresses you know, that assembly and to win Herod over, what, what have the people agreed to do? <laughs> yes, they're, you know, they're, they're going to they're gonna praise him. 
you know, and really build up his ego. They're going to really just fuel the ego of Herod. And if, if you do any research, research his history, most of the Herods had some pretty big egos. Most of these rulers in the ancient world did. Pretty big egos that would get out of control. And people had to somehow work with that. And, and so here, you know, they are, they are going to build up, you know, you know, try to favor. So he looks upon them favorably and they will, he'll resume the imports of food to their cities. And so they call him, you know, after this address, you know, you know, my subjective opinion is they didn't listen to what he said. They already knew what they're going to say. It didn't matter what he's going to say. You know, they're, they're going to praise him. You're the voice of a God and not a man. You know, so they want to build him up. And, it, and the scriptures tell us that immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and died. When you think about the what has transpired and and not only in the political world, God being the ruler of all nations and lifting up some and bringing down others. I think you see in this an ongoing answer to the you know, prayers for justice by God's people. God answered the prayer on behalf of Peter, but God is still answering prayers here. And judgment was administered justly by the creator here, and by the one who rules kings of all nations and all powers in the world. And so he struck dead, and, and the reason why, you know, we are told, is because he didn't, you know, say, oh, no, 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 I'm not a god. You remember, there's a similar incident that happened to, you know, that, that will happen to Barnabas and Saul in our next section of study. You know, but what do they do? When, when, when they're trying to attribute you know, you know, Barnabas and Saul, who are doing miracles, you know, what, 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 do, what do they do? Oh, no, 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 no. Yeah, yeah. They, they very quickly put a halt to that. And, and Herod did not do that. He just ate it up. And he gets eaten up. John. In the book of Revelation, even angels refused that worship. When yes. John would bow down Good to the point. angel. Right. Glad, yes. Angels, you know, you know, who are spiritual beings, spirit eternal beings that recognize they are not worthy of worship as God. Just a very you know, kind of closing little thought here about the death of, of, of Herod. It is, another, it is also a, a fact that is mentioned by Josephus. Uh, in his antiquities uh, of the Jews, his account is is told not exactly as uh, as the account you know, in Acts chapter twelve. But yes, there was this great celebration, and suddenly he struck ill, and then he dies. And so you see once again, you know, history, you know, uh, agrees with what God says happened. Thank you very much. Remember your outlines to pick up for next week. Appreciate it.